This evening we come to the end of the book of Lamentations. It's a book that started in the ruins. Chapter 1 of this short book described in pretty close-up detail the sad state of the city of Jerusalem. Not just the buildings of the city, but also the people. They lived in a devastated place, and emotionally they themselves were devastated. Chapter 1 described the bitter weeping of Jerusalem. We were told she had no one to comfort her. And in chapter 1, we began to hear about the Lord's part in all this. We heard that it was the Lord who brought this grief to Jerusalem because of her many sins. The devastation of Jerusalem by the Babylonians was an outpouring, actually, of God's wrath against Jerusalem. It was His judgment on her because of her many sins. And following on from that, chapter 2 focused on the Lord's anger. It showed us the strangeness of His anger. The fact that He tore down all that He had built up in Jerusalem, that showed that anger and judgment are His strange work and His alien task. And that truth offered some hope to those in the ruins of Jerusalem. Because if anger is not God's normal, eternal nature, then there is hope that He will show mercy. And chapter 3 took us further with that. It focused on the greatness of the Lord's love. Yes, sin and evil arouse Him to anger and wrath, and yet by nature He is a loving God, a God of great love, a God whose compassions never fail, a God who is good to those who seek Him, a God who does not willingly bring affliction and grief to anyone. So taken together, chapters 2 and 3 held out great hope to those living in the ruins of Jerusalem. They hold out great hope to us today. And then chapter 4 shifted the focus from the Lord's character to the high price of sin. Jerusalem needed to know, and we need to know, sin brings loss. Never gain. It is never worth it. Sin steals our glory and it destroys our foundations. So in many ways, this book has moved us forward. It has moved the people of Jerusalem forward. The cost of sin has been set out clearly, and the merciful character of God has been set out equally clearly. There is hope for those who own up to their sin and turn from it. There is hope for those living in dark, bitter situations caused by sin whether their own sin or someone else's. This book has moved us forward in those ways. But there is one way things have not moved forward. This book began in the ruins. And as we come to the end of the book, we find the people of Jerusalem still in the ruins. As the book closes, they have a deeper understanding of the cost of sin they have a deeper understanding of the loving character of God, but their circumstances have not changed. 
The situation about to be described in chapter 5 has not changed from the situation that was described in chapter 1. And as you and I read this, we can bear in mind the parallel with our own situation. We gather here on Sundays to learn wonderful truths about our great God, and then we step back into a world that is just as ruined as it was before we came to church. We go back to personal circumstances that are just as devastated by sin as they were before we came to church. That means Lamentations 5 has been written for us just as much as it was written for the people of Jerusalem two and a half thousand years ago. So let's read this last chapter. If you haven't turned there yet, it's page 829 in the church Bibles and in the large print Bibles 1286. Lamentations 5. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. We must buy the water we drink. Our wood can be had only at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We're weary and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. Slaves rule over us, and there's no one to free us from their hands. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Women have been violated in Zion and virgins in the towns of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gate. The young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from their hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim for Mount Zion, which lies desolate, with jackals prowling over it. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. 
This is God's word. And probably what's most noticeable about it is, it is significantly shorter than the first four chapters. It still has 22 verses, the same as chapters 1, 2, and 4, but they're very clipped verses. And there's something else that would be equally noticeable if we were reading this book in Hebrew. The first four chapters were all acrostics. In other words, each verse began with successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Or in the case of chapter 3, each letter of the alphabet was given three verses. That was the pattern of the first four poems. But in this final poem, the pattern disappears. There is no acrostic here in chapter 5. There's no pattern or order to how each verse starts. Which means there's a very noticeable lack of order to the whole poem compared with the first four poems. And if we ask what the significance of that is, the answer is it causes this book to end with a feeling of untidiness. If we thought the insights of the first four poems were going to make life neat and tidy, this final poem shows us that no, life stays untidy. Things do not get neatly resolved. Life stays messy. We are still in the ruins. The poet shows us that not only with the words he uses, but also the form he has chosen for this final poem. Actually, the lack of form he has chosen. And as the people of Jerusalem live in this untidiness, their prayer is, look, Lord, at our ruined inheritance. Notice how the poem opens in the first two verses. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. Verse 1 asks the Lord to see Jerusalem's disgrace. And what is at the heart of that disgrace? Their inheritance has been turned over to strangers. Jerusalem and the land around it was Israel's inheritance. It was God's good gift to them. But to understand what led to Jerusalem and the land becoming Israel's inheritance, to understand that we have to go way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 describe how God gave the first man and woman an incredible inheritance. God put them in a beautiful garden. It was a place for them to enjoy God's presence. It was a place for them to flourish, to find satisfaction as they tended the gift God gave them, the garden. And in fact, they were to extend the garden until it filled the earth. The whole earth was intended as humanity's inheritance. But Genesis 3 records how sin caused the man and woman to be cut off from their inheritance. They rebelled against the God who had given it all to them. They were expelled from the garden and from the presence of God they had enjoyed in the garden. And they found the land outside the garden became not a place of 
blessing or a place of satisfaction. It became a place of painful toil. What did God do at that point? Did God wash his hands of the whole thing and walk away? Well, it didn't work out. Did he scrap the idea of an inheritance for humanity? No, he began again with Noah. And then when the sin of Eden was repeated at the Tower of Babel, God began yet again. He started again with Abraham. And at that point, God's promises to Abraham focused on the land of Canaan as the inheritance God would give his people. It took hundreds of years, but finally Abraham's descendants did inherit Canaan. And as that land is described in the book of Deuteronomy, listen to how similar it sounds to the original inheritance in the Garden of Eden. This is describing Canaan. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills. A land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. A passage goes on to say that Canaan is a land where the people can eat and be satisfied. A wonderful inheritance. A place of blessing and satisfaction. And at the center of it all was God himself. God present with his people in what was to become the temple there. Now what's the point of recapping all of that history? The point is, the inheritance God gave Israel was not just a whim. It was evidence of God's long-standing commitment to provide his people with an inheritance. God had shown in the past even sin could not smother his commitment to give his people an inheritance. An inheritance that would eventually extend to include the whole earth. That was God's commitment. He had not given up on it after Eden, even after Babel. But the present situation, the situation that's described in Lamentations, is one where the inheritance of God's people is ruined. They have neither the place anymore, nor the blessing anymore, nor the satisfaction anymore. Verse 2 says, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. That is referring to the Babylonians, the invaders. To the Babylonians, Israel is not a special place at all. Nor is Jerusalem a special city. It's just another little square on the big map of Babylon's expanding empire in the world. And because the place has been turned over to strangers, that means for God's people, it's no longer a place of blessing and satisfaction. It has become a place of deprivation and frustration and pain. Now the following verses speak about fatherlessness. They speak about widowhood. That's due to men dying in the war and being taken into exile. 
We're told the people find that the water and the wood of the land, which used to be theirs to use freely, to cook and to stay warm, now they have to buy those things from the new owners of the land. Israel's inheritance was intended as a place to experience rest from all their enemies around them. But verse 5, if you look there, verse 5 says the present situation is one where those who pursue us are at our heels. We're weary and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. And in verse 8, slaves rule over us. Probably meaning Babylonian pen pushers rule over us. Little subordinates of the Babylonian machine. That's how low we've sunk. That's how insignificant we've become. Babylon sends its minions to be in charge of us. Slaves rule over us. There's no one to free us from their hands. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. We have to risk our lives even to go out and search for basic food. There's no satisfaction, there's no rest for us in this place that's supposed to be our inheritance. We're weak and we're unwell because we never have enough. And then piled on top of all of that lack There is abuse and humiliation. Verse 11, women have been violated in Zion and virgins in the towns of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. That seems to be referring to torture. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. Those used to be jobs for either animals or adults. One big millstone sat on top of another with the grain in between the two stones. And either an animal or a strong man would move the top stone around to grind the grain. Animals would also be used to carry loads of wood. But now, the animals have been used for food. The adult men are dead or in exile So the young men and the boys stagger as they try to do that work. We're not talking about healthy, hard work here. This is work that is beyond the ability of the people trying to do it. There's no satisfaction or rest in the ruins of Jerusalem. There's just humiliation and frustration. And what that does is it grinds the joy out of life. The end of verse 14 says, the young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned into mourning. Down in verse 17, because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. That's a reference to eyes that are blurred with tears for Mount Zion, which lies desolate with jackals prowling over it. Jackals live in ruins. They prowl in abandoned areas. And so, they've moved into Jerusalem, into Mount Zion. 
The jackals have moved in because the place is desolate and dead. And it's all summed up with one statement in verse 16. The crown has fallen from our head. This land was the inheritance of God's people. And Jerusalem was the crown of that inheritance. The king was there. The temple was there. God's presence was there. But not anymore. The inheritance is in ruins. The crown has fallen from our head. And remember, all this list of losses has been poured out before the Lord. Verse 1 started with, Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Look, Lord, at our ruined inheritance. And it's important to notice there's no suggestion here that the situation is unfair. Look back to verse 7. Our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. Or it could be translated, we bear their iniquities. There's no attempt to deny the sin that led up to the ruin of Jerusalem. The people left in the ruins know previous generations left a rotten legacy of sin, rebellion against God. The present ruins are a consequence of that rebellion. The situation is fair. There's no attempt to excuse past sin, nor is there any attempt from the current generation to say, well, we deserve better because we are better than our ancestors. Not at all. Look down to verse 16, the second part of the verse. Woe to us, for we have sinned. When God's people come to him and say, look, Lord, at our ruined inheritance, they're not trying to say we deserve better than this. They're saying, Lord, you gave us this place. It was your gift, and it's desolate. We bring this desolate place to you. We lay out the details of the desolation to you. And today, as you and I live in a society that is devastated by sin, as we live with daily news that can grind the joy out of life, news that can make our hearts grow faint, as we live with family situations that can make our eyes grow dim with tears, as you and I look at the ruins around us, without very much adjustment, we can pray verses 1 to 18 in our own situation. Even if all of the details don't apply to us, they certainly do apply to others. And when we remember who created this world, when we remember who put humanity in this world, we can also pray, Lord, you gave us this place. It was your gift. It was to be our inheritance. But it's desolate. We bring this desolate place to you. Look, Lord, at our ruined inheritance. But verses 1 to 18 are not the end of the poem. The final verses go further than just laying out the situation before God. In these final verses, the prayer is, come, Lord, and restore our inheritance. 
Look at verse 19. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. It is wonderful to have a God who listens to us. It's wonderful to have a God who patiently hears us as we pour out our hearts to him. But thank God he has power to do more than just listen. He has power to act, as these verses tell us. We have a God who reigns forever, whose throne endures from generation to generation. The people of Jerusalem knew that God's presence in Jerusalem had been vital to their prosperity. But they also knew God's throne did not fall when Jerusalem fell. His throne is high above all. And from that throne, he rules forever. And so, not only can God's people pray, look, Lord, they can also pray, come, Lord. Take action. Restore us to yourself. In other words, bring us your presence again. Restore us to the fellowship we had with you when your temple was here in the midst of us. And renew our days as of old. During the glory days of King Solomon's reign, Israel was a prosperous place. This is a prayer for a renewal of that prosperity. It's a prayer for a restoration of fellowship with God. It's a prayer for the blessings that flow from God's presence. It's a prayer for the satisfaction that comes when God's people enjoy the inheritance he has for them. It's a bold prayer. But you'll notice, at the very same time, it is also an uncertain prayer. It ends with an unless. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. There's no uncertainty here when it comes to God's character. There's no uncertainty when it comes to his power. But there is uncertainty when it comes to the issue of their sin. They've been taught in this book to confess their sin, come to God for compassion. They've been taught that his compassions never fail, that those who seek him will not be cast off by him forever. They know those things are true, but they're still living in the ruins. Their situation is still hard. In many ways, it's utterly miserable. And that leaves them uncertain. Could it be God has utterly rejected them? Or will he bring restoration and renewal? This final prayer is both bold and uncertain at the very same time. And so, as we said, the book of Lamentations ends in a very untidy way. It ends in a very unsatisfying way. There's no resolution here. 
It ends in the same ruins it started in, with the loose ends still just as loose as they were. And in a sense, that is our situation as well. We'll see in a moment, we do know more than these people in Jerusalem knew when they prayed this prayer. But it is also true that we live in a ruined world. It's not totally bleak, of course. But still, we live in a world where the bleak things cannot be avoided for very long. And they often seem to be overshadowing the bright, joyful things. In fact, so much so that at a certain stage in life, as we become more and more aware of the darkness in this world, and as it touches us maybe more and more, through personal experience or family experience, at a certain point we can begin to feel that joy is gone from our hearts. We can begin to feel that our dancing has turned pretty permanently into mourning. And so even while we know the truth of God's great power and his great compassion, all of the loose ends can leave us feeling uncertain. Will he restore and renew this ruined inheritance? Will he bring a place of blessing and satisfaction? Or are these ruins forever? Has God finally washed his hands of the whole thing. We can feel that way. But if we read on in Scripture, we find that we can pray with much more hope than we find here at the end of Lamentations. We can pray with more hope because we know more of the story. We know God has taken decisive action in the ruins. He's taken action to bring about restoration and renewal because his son Jesus came to live in the ruins. He was crucified in the ruins. And that divine self-sacrifice proved beyond all doubt God has not utterly rejected us. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross dealt with our sin. He paid the price. He bore the wrath. God's anger and wrath have come to an end for those who trust in Jesus' work. And so even as we live on in the ruins, we begin to experience renewal and restoration. We live in a renewed relationship with God. And that brings joy back to life in our hearts. It brings a deep satisfaction to our hearts. We heard about that this morning in Colossians a little bit. In Christ Jesus, we begin to experience the restoration of our inheritance. God is present with us by his Holy Spirit. He lives in us by his Spirit. Some of our inheritance has been restored already. What about the fullness of our inheritance? What about the place of blessing and satisfaction? Well, the New Testament tells us God's presence with us is our down payment on that. 
because God has already come to these ruins and moved in with us, first through His Son and now through His Holy Spirit, because God has taken up residence among His people, that is our guarantee He is going to restore the place as well. Because He is here with us, we know this place will be transformed into a place fit for God Himself. And look how that is described at the end of the Bible. This is in a vision shown to the Apostle John. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Jerusalem, the city of God, has always been at the center of God's plans. And at its peak, at its height, the Old Testament city of Jerusalem was a little foretaste of the true Jerusalem that is coming. And the vision in Revelation shows the dimensions of the new Jerusalem actually fill the whole renewed earth. God never abandoned his original intention from Genesis chapter 1. That this whole earth would be our inheritance. And his work of renewal and restoration in us that is our guarantee that one day he will renew and restore this whole ruined earth. Our inheritance was glimpsed briefly in the Garden of Eden. It was glimpsed again when the Old Testament city of Jerusalem was in its heyday with its temple, with Israel's king, ruling over a prosperous kingdom. But those are all just glimpses Because of the work of Jesus, the eternal reality is on its way. We've begun to taste it by coming to God in repentance for our sin, receiving His forgiveness, finding that His love and compassion are new every morning in our lives. We have begun to taste the eternal reality of our inheritance. And that foretaste is our guarantee the rest is coming. These ruins will be restored. What's wrong will be put right. Every tear will be wiped away. 
and our mourning will give way to eternal dancing. So yes, we are still in the ruins, but our inheritance is secure. And our next song reminds us it was the work of Jesus that secured our inheritance. And he did that work in the city of Jerusalem. We're going to respond to God's word before we share the Lord's Supper together. We're going to respond as we join in singing, See Him in Jerusalem. <laughs>